Welcome back to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. On the Balancing Act, we talk to business leaders and industry experts to explore the balancing acts we play in our professional lives and learn about the events that put rocket boosters behind their career success. Today, we have Beth Hollenberg joining us. <laughs> Beth is co-founder and CEO of Everspring a leading provider of education technology and services that partners with universities to power their success. Everspring's powerful technology solutions help universities build, market, and scale high-quality online and hybrid programs, connect their data to deliver world-class student and faculty support, and undertake successful digital transformations. I bet the marketing team wrote that, didn't they, Beth? They did indeed, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the show, and I'm so glad to be talking to you today. I am so glad to be talking to you, too. Yeah. So in the spirit of full disclosure, uh, Beth and I used to work together. She was in higher ed. I was in professional ed uh, back in the Kaplan days. And before the show, we were reminiscing about the power of the team that uh, was was there during the time that we uh, crossed paths. And I, I fully agree with you on that. Yeah, an amazing group of people in a really important time in in education. Right. So, Beth, before we get started, I ask this question of all of our guests. Please tell our listeners your story. I have an improbable story, Andy, and I'll talk a little bit about how I ended up in education. So I am um, the only child of two professors. Uh, my mother taught at Berkeley, and my dad was an academic professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. And his story really ended up setting the trajectory for my career path, which was my dad had grown up really poor in Depression-era Brooklyn. And so a lot of the stories that we grew up with at the, at the kitchen table about his childhood were about literally playing in the coal bin not having a nickel to get an ice cream cone, um, having all their furniture repossessed on the sidewalk. And he talked about dreaming about crossing the bridge. And it became this mythical thing to cross the Brooklyn Bridge, to, to climb up out of those circumstances into a better life. And even in his high school yearbook, somebody had signed to him, here's to crossing the bridge. And he ended up crossing the bridge. He um, basically ended up at Cornell Medical School, which is literally across the bridge, uh, uh, across the Brooklyn Bridge, and from there uh, to Harvard and from Harvard to UC San Francisco. And so just that sense of education as one of the very few transformative things that you can do that don't only change the trajectory of your own life, but literally changes the trajectory of generations of your family to come was really an ethos that, that I grew up with. Um, so I started in education, worked in social policy, worked in law, brought the two of them together at Kaplan, which is where we first met, uh, started running education businesses in 2004 and have been basically in education in K-12 on ground, online, and in post-secondary ever since, and think it is uh, one of the greatest career paths uh, 
that one can have. Yeah. So thank you for uh, telling us uh, that, that, that version of you and your father's uh, story, uh, because it just reminds us how, how transformative education can be. And we've kind of uh, parents and mentors have lulled ourselves into this sense of false security in the modern age uh, that, uh, that we don't need to continue to learn that we're somehow done uh, with our education. So uh, that is a very poignant uh, reminder that uh, if you're feeling stuck, if you're feeling like, uh, like you can't get out of your current circumstance, education is almost always the answer. So thank you so much for that. To pick one event in your life that just put rocket boosters behind your career, what would that be? I would say um, that it was there, that it was a combination of the way I was raised. So I'm the only child of a single parent. I joke I was raised by lone wolf. Um, my dad was a doctor and he raised me. And his ethos of if you're going to do something, make it matter. Don't waste your one precious life doing something you don't love. And I think it was that ethos and do it well. Um, that ethos combined with my decision to leave the law, which at that moment was such a controversial decision. I remember I ran into a friend on the street and I said, I'm leaving the law. I'm going to actually head towards business. And she looked at me and she said, you don't have an MBA. What qualifies you to do that? And I thought, you know, nothing, nothing qualifies me to do that. But the, the sort of being true to that decision and deciding that what I wanted to be was a really excellent business leader. And I think Kaplan and, and the Washington Post's willingness to give me those chances and to invest in me was absolutely not only transformational from a career perspective, but transformational from a personal satisfaction perspective. Yeah. I, my my mind is still back at I didn't want to fight anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a really exciting thing to fight for a living, but at the end of the day, um, I just did not want to end my career and look back and say, "Well, I did a lot of great fighting. I wanted right. to build." Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, so, Beth, let's dive in. Uh, can you give us a brief primer on what exactly? online program management or OPM uh, is, what's its purpose and who's the primary customer? So OPM, um, my feeling is that online program management is a dated term that refers to a certain bundling. It's a turnkey solution where you get everything that you would need to move a program online and then where you finance it through a revenue share. Basically, a university using also OPM, other people's money. Um, and then basically, the investment to build everything goes in upfront, and the provider earns that back over time. But the reason that I think that it's so outdated is that it also refers to a certain form of implementation in which the program itself tends to be divorced from the institution. So when you look back at where the term came into being, sort of right around a decade ago, maybe a little longer, um, universities didn't have online competencies. Online was tolerated, 
but not really accepted and certainly not expected. Universities had few to no capabilities. And so they entered into it like a bet with other people's money. I just think that as a sector, it should, it no longer describes a sector. It describes a product within a sector that some universities will still opt to have, which is to finance through taking a provider's investment in building all the services and earning it back through tuition. But I think it's outdated and I, um, I think that we need to move beyond it as a description of what's become extremely varied combinations of services. We, I know ourselves, deliver turnkey, but we also deliver point solutions. We license software. We have multiple financing mechanisms, fee-for-service, co-investment, and traditionally, revenue share. And so I think it's just a much more diverse provider landscape and a much broader diversity of services than is traditionally invoked when somebody says OPM or online program management. So what are we calling it now? I think it's a part of university services. And I think we've arrived at a place where students don't think of themselves as I'm an online student or I'm an on-campus student. Students just think of themselves as students. Universities who have delivered largely through Zoom and done a lot in remote learning um, are increasingly just a university, not an online arm and an on-campus arm. And so I think it's part of a set that's really university services, and it's a big, broad set of providers. Great. So rest of this episode and after, I'm going to adopt the phrase university services. And if you come up with any, anything zippier than that, you, you just uh, shoot me a text message and I'll start, I'll start using that. I but, will. You, you know, you've been leading the charge in the world of university services and online degree programs since Everspring's inception back in uh, 2012. Let's talk balancing acts. What's the most important balancing act that a university services provider has to play as it navigates the post-secondary educational delivery landscape? So um, it's absolutely balancing the fact that educational institutions have existed in their traditional form, I mean, since the Isle of Man, right? They are built to be enduring. And so by their nature, they tend to move more slowly. The pace of technology has just accelerated. So I think it's balancing for a university what they feel in their heart to be the right pace of change and sort of adapting that to how quickly they need to move and being able to put a foot in each of those two landscapes and be the translator. And so I think, you know, um, I don't know that it's going to be appropriate for the sector, but we often sort of the superhero uh, uh, aspect of being in university services is being a digital transformer. And that means that you are constantly translating the two worlds, one to another, and balancing moving, you know, preserving tradition, preserving what has been best practices, but putting that alongside of a rapidly transforming digital landscape, a student and prospect population that wants and demands something very different, and a set of capabilities and skills that is moving at light speed. 
Yeah. So that, that is the balancing act. I, I, I a hundred percent agree with you. And many institutions have been pulled kicking and screaming, uh, into the online space. And I think kicking and screaming is a kind way of putting it. So the, the world of digital delivery in the long lens of time, which is higher education, is just this little blip in the last uh, 15 or 20 years. How is that balancing act that you described, how has that evolved over especially the last uh, five or 10 years? I, I would say it's a slowly all at once moment. I mean, when we met with universities in 2013 and 2014, I remember we were in a room at one point and somebody said, you know, this internet thing might be here to stay. And that was 2014. <laughs> I mean, so I think when COVID hit, um, this idea that universities couldn't move quickly, that faculty couldn't instantly adapt to new things, it was almost like the emperor had no clothes and the truth was revealed and universities suddenly sort of instantly had to digest the fact that things could be changed overnight and were. So I think that was the first major milestone in, in ringing in what I think is a sort of an, 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 a period of what's going to be just increasingly rapid change. I think the second major milestone has actually happened in the last 60 to 90 days. $76 billion of COVID funding $76 billion that was going into higher ed is now expiring. And I think that universities have woken up very quickly to a really brutal reality, which was not that, that their worlds were being disrupted, but that they had been disrupted. Not that change was happening incrementally, that it had already arrived. And so I think that we're really seeing universities both grapple with in a very, very accelerated and pressing manner, sort of their need to adapt to a world in which students aren't plentiful, in which it's a consumer market, students will choose. And the fact that education is a major purchase for students, and they're making it very carefully. So I think that there are a lot of threads of technological change and market change, which has meant that universities are, are right on the front lines of needing to change, not in 10 years, one year, but really term to term. And we now have universities that come to us for the first time, we're hearing the question, how fast? Mm. How fast can you make this change? So slowly all at once, they really have an increased appetite for new ways of doing things. Awesome. Thanks for that, Beth. So we're going to take a short break. Uh, the week after this episode airs, uh, I've got a new book coming out. So we, we have to sell a book, but we'll be right back. I'm Andy Tempty. My new book, The Balanced Business, is scheduled for release on October 3rd. This book blends everything I've learned over the last 35 years and details the management operating system I would deploy if I could go back and do it all over again. The Balanced Business is a practical, real-world guide to help businesses achieve long-term success that's built on a culture of trust balanced with accountability. The Balanced Business is available for pre-order on Amazon.com today.
and we're back with Beth Hollenberg talking about the world of online and hybrid post-secondary education. Uh, Beth, let's shift gears to you and your specific career arc. What's the most important balancing act that you've played as it's contributed to your career success? Um, so I remember in 2000 and must've been eight or nine, I just started running the campuses and, and we did a, a photo shoot. It was a professional headshot, corporate photo shoot, those things that everybody loves and hates. <laughs> and the photographer was saying to me, she was giving me instructions and she said, well, you know, be strong, but, you know, not unwelcoming and, you know, be warm, but not overly friendly and, and be, look like a leader, but don't look bitchy. Um, and so there was this whole sort of, you know, go right, go left. And I think for a long time, I thought that that was about being a woman and being a woman leader, that female leaders had to be approachable, but strong and this series of contradictory sort of adjectives. Um, but I actually think it is the fate of the modern leader to balance being approachable with being directive um, and the ability to kind of be real and be relatable, but also to not have that lull people into, and especially now with everybody working from their living rooms and their bedrooms and, you know, maintain that level of, um, I'll call it formality, but it's really professionalism that we certainly need in order to deliver to universities. So I think it's that balancing act. And I think for many people, it threads through parenthood. You're balancing who you are as a warm and loving parent with who you are as a role model and a professional. And I think that, you know, those things are, um, are universal to leadership. Uh, and I think that it's been a really great time to navigate that, uh, that kind of home life and work life uh, the softer side of all of us as leaders and role models with, you know, the more decisive and edgier sides. It's certainly been the project of a lifetime for me and, uh, and, and a joyful one. Not always a perfect one, though, I'll add. <laughs> right, right. No, that, uh, thank you. Thank you for that. It's uh, a, a real, if I could bottle some of that up as uh, selling points for both my first and second books, boy, uh, you you really nailed it there. Um, in terms of those balancing acts, uh, let's uh, shift gears here slightly. I'd like to turn our attention to educational outcomes. Uh, this is something I'm sure you grapple with every day. Uh, opinions regarding the efficacy of online educational offerings are mixed and uh, have certainly been negatively impacted by the fits and starts of disruption and change in the industry. And there's this calcified narrative that online is somehow worse than in person in many people's minds. From your perspective, what's the current state of that debate versus the efficacy of in-person versus online? And how do we change some of those attitudes? Um, debates love absolutes, right? Yes. It's got to be a this or it has to be a that. I think the jury's in. I think the jury is absolutely in. And I think it doesn't have to be a face-off. There are things for which face-to-face -face learning 
is superior and will be superior. And I think, you know, I'm daughter of a doctor. It's a really interesting world right now where you have medicine meeting virtual reality, where you can be in person, but you don't have to actually practice on a person. Well, is a virtual reality simulation of a surgery, is that digital learning or is that face-to-face learning? And if you do it in a lab where you can then deconstruct how you did the VR simulation, what is that? So I really think that what we know is that bad pedagogy can exist in every modality. (laughs) Not every modality is right for everything. An overused modality, for example, tons of video when people have an attention span for video that's shorter, um, there are effective uses of tools. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we as services providers or as digital transformers, if I'm going to go with my superhero image, um, that we really bring to universities is that this is really nuanced. You don't lose power, you gain choice. A live musical performance is really different than a studio recording. So which is better? Well, they're not the enemy of each other. And and you can have a studio recording, the online version, and a live performance that each give you something very different. Um, And one thing that I haven't heard said that I hope I hear more, the beauty of online is you can measure engagement. So we're often in with faculty that say, if I lose that face-to-face contact, I'm not going to know if my students are engaged. But you can measure digital engagement. So I really think we're entering into a new landscape where I think the jury's in. I think it can be equally effective. I think it can be more effective. And I think that good pedagogy matters everywhere that it occurs, classroom, platform, um, or otherwise. Yes, good pedagogy matters. That is a wonderful phrase. Thank you. Thank you for uh, hopefully a lot of folks will listen to that explanation and it will start to break down uh, some of those calcified opinions. Uh, on this show, we also talk a lot about alternative pathways into the world of work, alternative uh, alternatives to the big monolithic credentials, which are degree offerings. Uh, from your vantage point, what kinds of innovations are you seeing colleges and universities adopt to increase academic accessibility and create more diverse pathways into the world of work? I think this is going to be the hidden um, secondary benefit of an enrollment crisis, which is as universities are looking for students, they've also become much more attuned to the fact that skill and sort of classical education are actually a perfect marriage. So we're seeing all kinds of innovation that universities were unwilling to undertake even five years ago. So we're seeing sort of on-ramps to education through course completion or certificate completion that can then lead into a degree, that can count towards a degree. We're seeing competencies be evaluated as, as criteria for acceptance. So your work and your work experience can count towards acceptance. We're seeing micro credentials, micro boot camps, very skill specific add-ons at the course level, at the certificate level, both formal certificates and also badging. So I really think um, that there's tremendous untapped power in the partnerships between industry who really needs trained you know, a a very trained workforce 
and universities. And I think we're seeing it go both ways. So, you know, Google is releasing certificates that universities are now counting as credit or as prerequisites. That's a fantastic marriage of applicable skill, education, and workforce development. And I hope we see a lot more of it um, because it's, it's a really powerful lever for educational and vocational change. Yeah, we live in this world where student debt is out of control. Um, you know, the the degree being this be-all, end-all of, Billy, you've got to go to college, you've got to get a degree. Uh, and, you know, the anchor that that has placed around some folks' neck uh, in terms of being able to move uh, forward in their careers, I am very hopeful that we are finally here in late 2023 at a point where we're going to see an acceleration of uh, university administrators opening their minds to, it doesn't have to be a degree. Uh, We need to get folks ready for the world of work and uh, bring down, uh, bring down debt uh, and, and many of the things that are preventing, uh, accessibility into the world of work. So thank you for that. Beth, let's uh, dive just a little bit deeper into the OPM concept. You were recently at a conference and during a panel discussion you participated in, you indicated that the current discourse we hear in the press and industry publications regarding OPMs is quote unquote, asking the wrong questions. Can you bring us into that conversation and elaborate? Absolutely. I think that the discussion is serving an important purpose and, um, and, and the, the discussion that we're having around what it means to have a public-private partnership are important questions. But I think the question of, you know, whether it's for-profit or not for-profit, the precise percentages that these settle at, the length of time um, is in many ways not the core question that we should be asking. Um, Those models have no inherent requirements. So you don't have to have a 15-year revenue share. You don't have to have a high percentage. You can have shorter shares. You can have a shorter percentage. So I think that discussion's important. But the real question is, how are universities going to deal with disruption? There's massive transformational change, the likes of which I don't think we've seen in the university ecosystem in our lifetimes. How are they going to manage technology moving at light speed? How are they going to manage changes in enrollment? Who's going to help them navigate a tremendous need for digital transformation? And I think that's the question that we really should be anchored on. And as a derivative of that, What capabilities do they need to to develop? How can high-quality public partnerships, public-private partnerships, speed that along and at the end of the day lead to a better result for students and a better result for universities? I think the real discussion that we need to be having is how do we restore our education system to its global dominance? So it's not that the OPM questions don't matter. I think that there are bigger and more important ones that we as an industry need to be focused on. Yeah, I think for our listeners, uh, you know, there's been this ongoing debate about 
uh, OPMs and whether or not they should be involved and the revenue shares are too high and what are these universities getting themselves into in these public-private uh, partnerships. And I really appreciate you shining a bright light on uh, what really amounts to the customer conversation. Uh, what are the outputs of the educational system? Well, they are graduates who uh, get good jobs and, uh, and, and go into uh, really, really solid careers. The, and, and the companies that are uh, consuming that talent, uh, that's what I, I really appreciate you focusing our attention there on the customer and on outcomes. So thank you very much. Thanks, Andy. Beth, let's have a little fun. <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to give you access to a time machine. You've got 280 characters that you can send a message to an earlier version of Beth Hollenberg. What's the message and what previous version of yourself do you send it to? Such a great question. Um for my time machine, I would send it to my early career self. Um, and it would be endlessly replayable <laughs> from that point onwards. And I think that the message would be keep your sense of humor. Keep your sense of humor. I think the tendency to find everything very important and serious and life ending yeah, I would tell my I would tell my younger self and my ongoing self, keep your sense of humor. That's a that's a wonderful message. You didn't use up all 280 characters, but <laughs> you did put it on endless repeat. So I, I, I would I would do that. I think the other one, and this is less personally, I believe this to be true about human nature. Everybody wants you to succeed. People don't want to see other people fail. It's it's actually not part of most people's human nature. Right. Um, and so maybe I string those together. Keep your sense of humor. Everyone wants you to succeed. Yeah. Awesome. So final question. What's next for Everspring? What are you excited about? What keeps you up at night? Um, the exact same thing that I'm excited about keeps me up at night. <laughs> um, higher education has been completely disrupted. And the provider set is in the middle of being completely disrupted. I think it's really exciting, um, including some of the critiques of the provider set, to watch universities pressure providers to deliver higher quality solutions, to have an outcomes focus, um, to demand more and different combinations. And Everspring is uniquely well-situated to deliver that. We built it thinking that everything that's bundled together will be disintermediated, that universities aren't one place, they'll need different things over time, and that really build, operate, transfer as an operating model is something universities are going to need. They are waking up to the fact that these are competencies they're going to have to build and have if they're going to survive in a digital landscape. So I love the opportunity that that creates. Um, what keeps me up at night uh, is, is navigating the, the opportunity that that creates well and making sure that our partners um, don't jump at the shiny object um, that's not enduring. And I think that, you know, the hype cycle uh, can suck people in 
Um, and so we watch very, very carefully what part of this trend is going to be lasting and effective, what part of this or that trend uh, is going to be short-lived. And I think, you know, with the dawning of AI, we're in a great moment where that question really matters. What pieces of AI-enabled technology are going to be most transformative, are going to help with cost containment, are going to help with educational outcomes, and which pieces are going to be sort of low-calorie, uh, you know, light adoption. So I think I think we are entering a brave new world. Uh, and if we saw the industrial revolution, I think we are now about to really open up to a new revolution. And so being being the guides for our partners and doing that well and and serving them correctly uh, is something I take seriously enough to keep me up at night. <laughs> well, Beth, I'm proud of the work that you're doing, and thank you for uh, shining a uh, bright light on the shiny ball syndrome. I talk <laughs> a lot about the shiny ball syndrome in uh, in in my work. I have succumbed to it myself as a leader. Uh, over the years. Uh, so I'm on a crusade. Uh, you're, you're on a crusade to change the phrase OPM to university services. And uh, we need to minimize the, the, the impact of the shiny balls around us. So thank, thank you oh. for that. Um, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, uh, Beth. So thank you very much. My name is Andy Tempty. This is the Balancing Act Podcast. You can find us on all the major streaming services. Please like, subscribe, rate, and share. We've had Beth Hollenberg on the show. Nicholas Tempty produced this show, and we will see you next time.